How do the best data scientists in the world master their datasets, train their machine learning models, and climb the data science ladder? Let's ask them. My name's Jeremy, and this is the Towards Data Science Podcast. what institution you're coming from, you can get access to the very latest research. We also have to make sure that we're constantly revisiting our foundations and justifying why we're using the methods we are. It's hard not to employ you. Like, it doesn't matter what field you're in or what is it that you're good at. If you're good at something, if you like something with passion, there is someone who really, really needs you. Welcome everyone to the Towards Data Science Podcast. My name is Jeremy and this is the first episode in our Climbing the Data Science Ladder series where we'll be interviewing world-class data scientists and machine learning engineers to learn what they think you should do to level up your data science game. Now as always, please drop us a comment or leave a review to help other people find us and make sure that we can keep booking awesome guests like Joel Groose, who I'm super excited to introduce now. Joel is a former mathematician turned hedge fund manager turned chief scientist turned Googler, turned machine learning researcher. He's currently a podcaster, a part-time Twitter ninja, and a full-time senior research engineer at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, and he has some strong opinions about how you should be doing data science. Also, he wrote a book called Data Science from Scratch, which is now in its second edition. You should go read his book. Joel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you have some controversial opinions, to say the least, about how data scientists should be doing their jobs, and we definitely want to unpack those and dive into it. Um, but before we do that, could you just give us a little bit of context on, on your career, so where you come from on the technical side and how you've gotten to where you are today? Like, How did you get started in data science? Yeah, so uh, I've been doing this for a while now. I started off by studying math, as you pointed out. I was never quite a mathematician. I dropped out of grad school, and I started off doing uh, quantity to finance because back then that was what you did if you studied math and didn't really follow through on the mathematician part of it. So I worked at a hedge fund uh, doing foreign exchange pricing and financial risk modeling and a bunch of other things that I didn't particularly enjoy. Um, and so when the hedge fund went out of business, uh, I started looking for a different career. And I happened to end up at this startup called Faircast, uh, which was an online travel site that did price predictions for airfares. So this was like 2006. And so I joined in kind of a business intelligence type role. At the time, uh, really my only skill was that I was really good at building spreadsheets. And I may have exaggerated how good at SQL I was. I joined Faircast, uh, worked there for four years. Uh, you know, After two of them, it was acquired by Microsoft. And while I was working there, uh, I actually did get good at SQL. I worked with a lot of machine learning people. They called themselves data miners at the time. And so I sort of by osmosis learned the very basics of machine learning and started writing some really basic Python scripts. Uh, and so then around not around, but in 2011, uh, data science was just starting to become a thing. And I thought I would like to be a data scientist. Like that's kind of what I've been doing and now there's a name for it. And so I actually want to you know, make that my career path. And, and so in 2011, it was actually much I think, easier to find, well, I won't say it's easier because there weren't that many data science jobs, uh, but the ones that they had, they didn't really know how to interview for. So my uh, interview for the data science job I got, which was at a brand new startup, I'd, one employee, uh, was me meeting with the CEO and he had a printout of a SQL query and he asked me, do you understand this? 
<laughs> and I said, yes. And then he hired me. Um, so, so, that, so that worked out pretty well. Um, so I was there for three years. It was a startup called Volumetrics. And during those three years, I hired some junior data scientists. I managed people. I wrote production code. And what I found was that I really liked writing production code. I, I enjoyed the building things aspect of my jobs more than I enjoyed the analyzing data aspect of my job. And so uh, I started looking for more opportunities to sort of build things and grow out my software engineering skills. And so when I had the opportunity to interview at Google, I thought, you know, I bet if I went there, that would be a good place to develop software engineering skills. Um, and so I, I really crammed for the interview, somehow made it through, went there and did build out my software engineering skills. Um, but what I found was that the projects I was working on there were not very interesting to me. So I started looking, uh, work, how can I get back? I still want to be building things, but I want to be working more in the, you know, machine learning data space. And so I ended up here at AI2. Uh, and despite your intro, I'm not actually a researcher. I'm a research engineer. So that really means I work with researchers. I build tools for researchers. I, you know, help them get up and running. Uh, I work on a project called Allen NLP. It's basically a deep learning library for doing NLP research. And so I do everything from adding features to the library, fixing bugs, embedding with researchers to help them get their experiments written in Allen NLP, um, building you know, interactive visualizations, uh, figuring out what, what to add next, all of it. So, so it, it really seems like the very role that you're occupying right now is a reflection of maybe your philosophy towards data science in general. Just this idea of introducing software engineering best practices to the field and kind of being the conduit. Is, is that fair to say is that you're like the conduit for good software engineering practices um, into the sort of data science side of the org? So yes and no, I would say. Um, one you wouldn't think of it as a data science side of the org. We're uh, we're a research nonprofit, right? So the researchers I work with are more akin to, uh, you know, computer scientists who are actually doing research in deep learning rather than solving data specific mm. data problems for the most part. Um, and so, to some degree, I would say yes. The Allen NLP project, uh, and I can't put all the responsibility on me. The the other people who work on the team sort of are of a similar mind on this. Uh, but we, we have a pretty strong belief that good software engineering discipline leads to good reproducible research, good experiments, things like that. So I embedded last year with a couple of researchers who were writing a paper, and I helped them get their experiments written in LNLP and so on. And you know they wrote a paper. My name is on the paper. But if you were to ask me, what was your contribution to the paper? You know, A lot of my contribution was uh, I made them write unit tests, and I made them do code reviews, and I made them do all these other things. So, um, that's something that I really try and push. Uh, I gave a couple of talks at academic conferences recently, one at AAAI in January and one at iClear in May, both around basically how software engineering best practices can help researchers kind of tackle the reproducibility aspect of what they do. And then one was sort of the opposite, which was how we can use researchers' desire for reproducibility to trick them into adopting software engineering best practices. I love that. I love that philosophy. It's it's so true because um, AI researchers, like many of them, just want to get going on whatever it is they can get going on. Uh, that kind of explains a lot of the Jupyter Notebook stuff, of course, that you see. But um, I think I think you mentioned this in your talk, but Jupyter Notebooks have this reproducibility problem as well. And so this kind of feels like it ties in really closely to like everything that you're doing in terms of trying to make researchers write reproducible code and be able to do things such that other researchers can, can correctly reproduce what they've built. 
I think that's right. Uh, I mean, that wasn't the genesis of the notebooks talk. The genesis of the notebooks talk was that when deep learning started to become a thing, prior to that, most of the work done here at AIT was done in Scala uh, for various reasons. And then when deep learning became a thing, a lot of that work for obvious reasons migrated to Python. And so this was sort of lucky for me is that I, I have a long history of doing Python and a, a much less long history of doing Scala. So it was the world sort of shifted was already. Uh, and so I became kind of a point person for helping people with their Python problems. And I had a colleague who's a pretty senior engineer but had never done Python before. And she came to me and she said, I don't understand this, what am I doing wrong? Like, I don't get Python, it doesn't make any sense. And she brought me a notebook and the problem was that she had run her cells out of order and gotten confused about the state. So I asked her, why did you use a notebook? She said, oh, well, you know, people said that's the right way to get started using Python. And so I was frustrated over this process that basically the notebook interface had led her to be a lot more confused than she would have been if she'd just been you know, working in the REPL or working in an IDE or something like that. So I made, a, I made an angry tweet about it. I make angry tweets sometimes. That led to being invited to give a talk. Um, then once I knew that I was going to give a talk at JupyterCon on I don't like notebooks, I thought I better like get my ducks in a row because that's going to be the most hostile audience I ever faced. So I better sit down and like figure out why is it that I don't like notebooks. And so I, I sat down and went through and came up with a lot of reasons. Um, one of which was that the notebook workflow makes it difficult in a lot of ways to do reproducible research. And that's the one that people, especially in the academic community, seem to have latched onto, especially because there are people out there who promote Jupyter as a venue for reproducible research. What is it about, specifically about the Jupyter Notebook? I mean, you alluded to running cells out of order, but just for people who are listening to this and maybe to whom the Jupyter Notebook is the tried and true staple, you know, they're like data analysts or data scientists um, and doing day-to-day -day stuff. What is it about the Jupyter Notebook that makes it so problematic when it comes to reproducibility? When it comes to reproducibility, the biggest challenge is that, uh, there, so there's a couple challenges. One is that in order to reproduce code, especially in Python, you need to first reproduce the environment in which the code ran. Uh, so that means typically some sort of, here's a version of Python, here's a version of PyTorch I wanna use, here are all the various libraries and dependencies I wanna use. And so, you know, vanilla Jupyter notebooks don't give you any way to recreate that environment. Uh, and so, you know, you can have a requirements.txt and various other things and say, stepping outside the notebook, here's how to set up the environment and now run Jupyter in that environment uh, and you're good to go. That's a step away from saying this notebook sort of is a self-contained reproducible document of what I did. The, the second challenge is that if you wanna reproduce code, uh, or reproduce an experiment, it helps a lot if you make a real clean division between what I'll call library code and experiment code. So the library code is, here's the definition of my model and what it's going to, uh, you know, what, what it does. It takes a tensor and it spits out a tensor and things like that. And the code that is required to optimize it, things like that. The experiment code is, I'm going to run this model, uh, you know, against this data set, which lives at this path, and I'm going to run it for this many iterations and I'm going to run it on this GPU and this is the learning, things mm -hmm. like that. And, and so the more cleanly you separate these two things, the easier it is for someone else to take your work and reproduce it. 
whereas if you have you know paths to files hard coded throughout your code uh, and you know specific GPU setups and things like that, it's going to be very difficult for someone else to run that code because they're going to have to go through and figure out all these different places where something is hard coded that they need to change. And so again, the notebook format where you have essentially everything in one document uh, makes it very challenging to say. I want to take this thing, but run it with with different parameters that are specific to my use case or my data set or my system. And, and so I think notebooks potentially make that more difficult as well. So basically the notebook format, what you're saying is the notebook format makes it easier for me to be sloppy than like a modular, a bunch of files type format. So I would say, yes, one, it makes it easier for you to be sloppy. That's definitely true. And as I said at the end of my talk, if Jupyter had a switch where uh, where notebooks were basically append only, like once I've run a cell, I can't write over it and rerun it. That, that one change would alleviate a lot of my claims. And I have people I have people coming up to me quite frequently, you know, pretty senior data scientists, they say, I think you're wrong about notebooks and I disagree with your talk, but yesterday I ran the cells out of order and it screwed me. So do you think that notebooks at least have a place, uh, maybe just for like for tutorials to, to walk people through sorts of simple concepts and whatnot? I think notebooks, do have a place. And what that place is, in my mind, there's still not a great solution for, I'm interactively exploring some data set, and I want to do that and generate charts and graphs mm -hmm. as I go. Um, so something like a notebook, it feels to me, is as of right now, the best solution for doing that. My personal workflow is I would rather work you know, in the IPython console, the REPL, that way. But if I need to generate graphics and charts, that becomes a little bit more difficult. Now, there's some things you can do in VS Code, where if you have a Jupyter backend, you can send things over to the right-hand side and look at the charts, and, and so maybe that's better. I've only spent a little bit of time playing with that. So, so that's, that's the best case for me for using notebooks. I'm not a huge fan of notebooks as a teaching tool, and I'll put an asterisk there. Um, that I'll come back to in a second, because there's a sense in which notebooks make it really easy to write bad interactive tutorials. Uh, so the caricature I have is that here's a bunch of code and I want you to hit shift enter to run the first cell and now you hit shift enter to run the second cell. Now you hit shift enter in the third cell and you get to the bottom of the notebook and you've hit shift enter you know, 20 times and trained a model, but you haven't really learned anything. You've just hit shift enter a bunch of times. And so like, on one hand, it's not notebook's fault that people tend to write tutorials that way, but there are a lot of bad tutorials, and I question whether you know, hitting shift enter a bunch of times is, is better than just reading the code and not hitting shift enter. So what's the big asterisk? The big asterisk is that in the fall, I said I would give an Allen NLP tutorial at the O'Reilly AI conference, and Allen NLP doesn't run really, it doesn't really run on Windows. Um, and so I need a way that I can get everyone in that tutorial to run some code on their computer, some of which may be Windows. So it may be the case that something like a Colab notebook is my only option to give people some kind of interactive virtual compute environment. But I'll, I will be sad if that's the case because there are certain things like writing unit tests that that workflow does not lend itself to. That's also somewhat solving a, a slightly different problem. Like if you had a nice format that wasn't as, Jupiter-y, but that was also kind of cloud-native, you would be able to solve that problem more or less, I guess. I, I think so. And I don't, I don't know how widespread that problem is. I just know it's a problem that 
I have to figure out how to deal with at some point. It, it definitely comes up quite a lot. I mean, folks, like anyone who teaches anything live or even not live, it just wants people to learn regardless of the machine that they're using, right? Like you, you need some substrate that you can just like clickety clack on and, and see whether it's, uh, whether it's running properly. I, I mean, if I were teaching like a semester long class, I would probably solve this problem with Docker and just tell people you need to install Docker mm -hmm. on your computer and here's the Docker image we're going to work in and end of story. Um, when I have three hours to do a tutorial, I don't know that I want to devote the first hour of that getting everyone set up on Docker. Yeah, like you want to avoid a barrier to entry in that. Exactly. Case. You mentioned your tutorials as well, and that's something I wanted to touch on too. Because so I just spent, full full disclosure, I just spent about an hour today watching your um, FizzBuzz tutorial, legendary FizzBuzz tutorial using deep learning. If, if anybody hasn't seen it yet, I recommend you check it out because it's actually really informative. I actually learned a ton watching it. Embarrassingly enough, and what I what I found fascinating was basically for anybody who hasn't seen these. Um, so Joel lets people essentially look over his shoulder as he codes. He comments what he's doing. You're sort of like using a lot of best practices. Your code looks beautiful. It's very clean. One of the things I noticed, though, was that so you, you go with an object-oriented approach. So you use classes all over the place um, to define your, your machine learning libraries. And one question I had for you was on this idea of object-oriented versus functional programming. Because you, you talked about Jupyter Notebooks and one of the drawbacks there being state and being the statefulness of the Jupyter Notebook and how it kind of haunts you and follows you around. Um, then, then I noticed you using classes for your tutorial. So I, was, I guess I was wondering, like, how do you see that interplay between object orientation on the one hand, giving probably a kind of statefulness that I, I'm guessing you, you like to work with versus Jupyter Notebooks that have a more problematic version of that? My complaint about notebooks is not that... They have states. Uh, it's very hard to program without maintaining state of one form or another. It's that they have hidden states. So the state is not particularly easy to inspect. And it's easy to get it wrong. And, and in particular, what I mean is, uh, you know, in my talk, I gave some pretty pathological examples. But where if you look at the code that's contained in the notebook, that's not the code that necessarily ran to put variables into the kernel, right? And so I may have you know, a cell that says x equals one, but maybe before I put that there, uh, I said x equals 10 and I never ran the x equals one cell. So, uh, so, so it's more this notion of, it's not so much that there's state, it's that I find the, the state difficult to reason about. Okay, so at any and time- I think that's the challenge. Like at any time I can interrogate, say if I have an instance of a class, I can interrogate the values of all the different components or, or look at all the functions. I can't necessarily do the same in the same way in the notebook or they're, I guess, they're red herrings, straight up red herrings that can show up. Yeah, yeah. Because like you can you can just change the, the what's in a cell without running it. And so if you inspect it quickly, I guess, like you don't see what the state actually is. The, but the, the other thing I would say is that uh, when you see me doing all this object-oriented programming, that's really me being in build a library mode, not explore some data, write a script mode, right? So the idea is not that I'm going to define these classes, instantiate a bunch of objects into memory, and then start working with them at the REPL. It's that I'm going to define all these classes, and then having built out something that looks like a library, now I'm going to go elsewhere and write a script it instantiates them in a specific way, uses them, and saves the result. Yeah, yeah, and then that actually, yeah, that I guess that's a completely different mode um, of, of thinking. And so, 
one question that I have, like looking at, at just the, the clean, I was overcome by the beauty of your code when I was watching it. Um, what are some of the, the most obvious problems that you see data scientists, or mistakes rather, that you see data scientists make when they're, let's say they're competent at the, the data science part of data science, but they're lacking in the software engineering part. What are some of the most common software engineering mistakes that you've caught people making? That's, a, that's an interesting question. So I have pretty strong and idiosyncratic preferences. Uh, so one, and so these are not going to be mistakes. They're going to be things I don't like. Mm -hmm. um, so one is bad variable names. I really dislike it when people use bad variable names. So if you're talking about, you know, the width of something, I, I want that variable called width, not, you know, WTH or WDT or, or whatever. Like characters, characters are cheap and you know, most people have some fancy two hundred dollar keyboard, so you might as well use that. And, and this isn't this isn't a preference I would have expected from a guy who started out in math, to be honest. That, that's an that's an interesting point. Um, I mean, it makes I, sense. It makes sense. I started out in physics, and I agree with you. But it's just like it's it's interesting. I like in math, characters are expensive because you have to move your hand. Yeah, it's also the case that you know a lot of times what you're doing in math is much more abstract, right? So I'm talking about like a group of objects. And so I might want to call the elements G or H or X or Y or whatever, because I don't know anything about them. This group could be mm -hmm. a group of anything, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so similarly in programming, the more generic, if you were to look at, say, Haskell, where someone is writing a function that maps over a list, uh, they will probably call those variables X and Xs because that list could be a list of absolutely anything. Um, and so there's a sense in which the variables are called that because you don't really know anything more about them other than that. You know, they're an element of a group, or this is something, an element of some arbitrary vector space. Uh, whereas when you do know things about them, and in programming often you do, then that gives you the luxury of being able to use more concrete, more descriptive names. So you mentioned variable names. I think that's one most people can get behind, um, though it's one that a lot of people violate on a regular basis. Are, are there any others that are kind of especially salient? Uh, I think data scientists should write unit tests always. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, mo and most of them don't or don't want to, or they say, I'm doing uh, you know, machine learning, how do you write a unit test for machine learning? And I probably need to put together like a talk or a tutorial about that. In fact, one, one of the big changes I made for the second edition of my book was that I basically added simple assert style testing kind of throughout the book. So every time we implement something, okay, now we're gonna write like a small test for it, um, mm -hmm. just to demonstrate that one, that's the right thing to do. Two, it's not that hard. And three, that's much better. It's much better to say, you know, assert that the dot product of these two vectors is some result and why than to write in the text, oh, and by the way, the dot product of these two vectors should be this. Yeah. So that's another one. Um, I personally am not uh, a fan of using dictionaries as like data structures. Um, Again, again, this is sort of much more a personal preference thing. If you if you watch any of, not so much the deep learning video, but I also have this series of videos of me trying to solve advent of code problems. Um, and, and there, you know, I will make little named tuples if I have a class or if I want to represent something rather than a dictionary. Um, so so that's again. It's a preference thing. Why is that? What sorts of things do name tuples uh, do you find name tuples better for than, than dictionaries? You you may have noticed in, in my live coding videos, I use type annotations everywhere. Mm. And in particular, in particular, I want to think about everything I do uh, in terms of types. Uh, I want to think about my data in terms of the type of the data. And so, 
if I have a labeled image, for instance, and I say the type of this is going to have an image, which is a torch tensor, or let's say pixels, which is a torch tensor, and a label, which is an integer, then that allows me to reason about that object uh, and get help from my editor and check that I'm using it correctly in a way that I would not be able to do if I said an image is going to be a dictionary that has a you know an entry for pixels that'll have something and an entry for label that'll have something else. Uh, and so it just gives me, one, it allows my editor to help me out a lot more. Um, and two, uh, it allows me to dot into things, image.label, which I find to be much nicer than you know having to bracket in with text label. And it allows me to actually check the types I'm using and make sure they're correct. I actually kind of mentor a couple of people who are breaking into data science right now. Um, one of the things that's come up recently, though, is the size of functions. So like, how big can a function get before you break it up into sub-functions? Oh, I went to a Python meetup last week, and one of the talks was about like Python mistakes I have made. And one of the points that the speaker made was uh, about this, this rule about breaking a big function up into smaller functions. Um, and that was actually the one of his rules that I kind of disagreed with the most. In that you should or you shouldn't break them up? There's no simple answer like that. But I guess what mm. I would say is, uh, if you tell me, let's institute a rule that no Python function may be more than 20 lines, um, I would say, no, that's a bad rule. If you said, let's institute a rule of thumb that let's try to keep our functions under 20 lines unless we, unless we you know, have to make them longer, I'd say, OK, that seems like a reasonable rule of thumb. So I think, I think it's a good rule of thumb to keep your functions small. And I think if you end up with a big function, it's worth asking yourself, is there a sense in which there's too much in here and I should break it into smaller pieces? But I don't think that you should say, oh, here's a 100-line function. I must break it up. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it really takes 100 lines to do what you need that function to do. If that's the case, I think it's a little bit silly to break it into 10 smaller functions just because someone somewhere said, oh, functions can only be 10 lines. Yeah, so you're advocating for a really pragmatic approach, basically like look at the the semantics, the meaning behind the different chunks of code, and break them up by meaning. I wouldn't. I wouldn't even say by meaning. I, but what I would say is that, like conceptually, sometimes if I have a hundred lines of code, sometimes conceptually there are pieces that make sense to abstract out and live on their own. Sometimes there aren't, and if there aren't, don't force it. Yeah, I, I really agree with this. Actually, like. It's it's easy to be an absolutist when you're starting out and be like, oh, like I I've run into problems where my functions were too long, therefore I'm making a rule where I will force myself to do this. But eventually you run into situations where it's like, well, no, actually it does make sense to keep it longer. I mean, I, like I, what I tend to suggest to folks is like, look, if you hit a point where your function is longer than this, just force yourself to ask yourself the question of like is there maybe something wrong with this? And it's okay if the answer is no. So shouldn't the question be more um, like, is this function doing more than one thing? Shouldn't one strive to have no side effects, uh, have a function do one thing and one thing only? I feel like that's better than length of function. I'm not, I'm not convinced, I guess. Like, let's say I have a function that does three things. Should I break that up? Well, would I ever need to do one of those things uh, on its own? Or do I want to be able to test those three things individually? Mm. I mean. If either of those are the case, then yes, it makes sense to break it up. But if those three things uh, really belong together in some conceptual sense, and it's hard to imagine wanting to do one separate from the other two, then I probably wouldn't break them up. That's true. Then it's just broadening your definition of the one thing. Uh, I guess, possibly. 
Yeah, it gets philosophical pretty quickly. Um, uh, now, uh, one, one other thing, because something that's really unfamiliar to, I think, a lot of data scientists, is fair to say, is the unit testing stuff. Like, if yep. I had to pick one thing where I'm like, even I feel like, uh, like I've done unit tests for non-Python uh, for data science. Now, if you throw me in the deep end and say, go make some unit tests for this, like, this deep learning script, um, I'm going to start to get a little concerned, anxious, and uneasy. So what would you say to somebody like me to, to guide me through it? What's, what should be, the, the I guess, the, the first couple of tips you could give me to get started on making good unit tests for... Uh... So if you're doing a machine learning problem, uh, the simplest thing to do is to, one, take your data set and shrink it down immensely. So maybe shrink it down to three examples. So small that there's almost nothing going on. And now I have, you know, I have some big CSV file that has all my data that I'm training. And I have a tiny test fixture CSV file that has three rows. And now I have code that deals with that file, right? I have some code that potentially reads the file off disk and converts it into tensors or instances or something, right? And so now I can write a test for that code because if I read in my three line file, I know what that data should look like having been read in. And so I can write a test that says, read in the three line file and assert that the data that you've got in terms of tensors or in terms of whatever is what I expect it to be. And so that's a test that the part of your code that reads in the data um, is doing the right thing. Similarly, if you're doing pre-processing, again, you can write a test that starts with a tiny known data set, does your pre-processing step, maybe it's, you know, subtracting out the mean and setting the standard deviation to one and apply it to this known data set and then you know spend five minutes by hand figuring out what the right answer should be and assert that it's producing the right answer. And so now I have a model and I want to take the model and again apply it to this toy data set. Well, I know that one, the model should run without crashing. That's a pretty minimal mm -hmm. thing, but I can check that by running it on a small data set. I can check that the results have the right format, the right dimension, the right shape. And you know if I want, I can actually train the model on my three instance data set. It will train really fast. And you can check one, that the loss is going down over time. Mm -hmm. And two, that it learns to predict perfectly on that training set, which it should, right? Because it's three instances, if your model has any capacity at all, it should learn that perfectly. So these are all things that are not complicated to write the test for. Yeah. But if you run those tests against your, again, three instance data set, that gives you a lot of confidence that the pieces that are going into my machine learning workflow uh, are doing the right thing, right? And so now when I go and run them on my big data set and it takes hours to run or whatever, I feel much better about that. And I'm not going to have it crash after running for seven hours that, uh, oops, the, this tensor has the wrong shape. So that's definitely the workflow that we push on people pretty uh, pretty strongly. People are using Allen NLP and, and I, I try and push that pretty much everywhere else as well. I feel like the the um, trap that my brain falls into, because as you're, as you're walking through that, I kind of went, oh yeah, of course, like, it, you know, it's so obvious. And my brain sort of wanted me to think, well, these are sto like stochastic processes, a lot of them, you know, you're talking about the loss going down. Theoretically, um, there's some stochasticity potentially in that. And so my brain keeps going like, oh, well, so you, you can't guarantee that'll happen. But it, as you say, like you should be able to overfit your model with a, a toy data set of three examples. You should be able to see the loss function go down. That's, that's, that's really, um, I, think, I think, a really useful overview for, for people who are trying to get into that. So, And, and I mean, for non-machine learning problems, you can imagine similar, right? I, I have some data frame that I want to do something to. Again, if you start with small known values, um, then you can work out by hand what the right answer should be and again write tests for 
those transformations or, or whatever. And do you write tests when you're just doing EDA, like when you're just playing around with the data to explore it, or is that like a separate mode? That's an interesting question. Um, I would say if the EDA involved processing functions like that, I would write tests for them. So if my EDA involved reading data off disk in some complicated format or whatever, I would write a test for that to make sure that the functions I'm using to read data off disk uh, are behaving correctly. Uh, because you don't want to screw that up, obviously. If you screw that up, then everything else you do is going to be wrong. Um, now, if after that I'm just mucking around in pandas, I'm probably not going to write tests for, for that code. And you're, you're, you'd be doing that, like as I understand it, you'd be doing that just like in the REPL? No. As opposed to a notebook? Or like, do you have another uh, preferred mode that you like? So what I would be doing is, if I really needed to write like non-trivial code to read my data in, I would put that code in a module and I would test that module. And then in the REPL, I would load from that module and you know, load the data in using that code. But I, anytime I have code that I want to use multiple times, I want that code in a module. That makes sense. Actually, this kind of, uh, this makes me think of another question. So um, for someone who's starting out in data science, like kind of let's, let's say like maybe they've got a bit of Python, but basically they're, they're learning it from scratch. Um, which is like the title of your book, little, little <laughs> um, and so maybe this answer is is already in your book. Uh, but but if I'm learning data science from scratch, uh, so many people say like, oh, just learn on a Jupyter notebook because one of the advantages that that does have for someone who's starting out is it's uh, it's at least superficially it's linear, right? It's like I write one thing, then I write another thing, then I write another thing. Um, would you suggest someone start? that way or more like writing modules or more just like in the REPL playing around with very, very basic stuff? If someone came to me and wanted to start at that, that basic, I would tell them to work in the REPL probably. And uh, you know, once they started doing things that were more complicated than just typing in a command, typing in a command, typing in a command, uh, then I would have to figure out, okay, where does this person need to go next? And it, you know, it's possible Look, uh, there are a lot of places that use notebooks, right? And so if you want to get into data science, um, probably have to learn notebooks because there's a lot of places where you go there and that's how they do data science, right? So uh, don't don't mistake me as saying, don't learn notebooks, don't use notebooks. They're kind of, they're everywhere. And it's it's probably hard to get by if, if notebooks are not part of your yeah. toolkit. Um, it, it's more, my position is more like know their limitations and know when it's time to put your code in a module and write tests for it and things like that. Like you pointed out, like you're, you're just the fact of the notebook can trip you up as a beginner independently of how hard Python is. But, right? but they're also a very convenient crutch too, right? Like I, I think to me, when, when I think Jupyter Notebook, I really do think crutch, like all cards on the table. I do tell the, the people I coach through this, I do tell them to start with, with uh, Jupyter Notebooks. This was before looking at your slides, Joel. So um, I'll be revisiting that for sure. But I, what I want them to do is start with the Jupyter Notebook, do a bunch of EDA, do a bunch of model building, then migrate over to, you know, .py scripts. And there's, you can sort of see that like, uh, that weaning off the notebook stage, just requiring inhuman amounts of effort on their part. There, there's like this draw for some reason to the notebook. And one of the things that I'm trying to figure out, because I, I feel it myself, it feels like a more comfortable environment for some reason. And I'm not sure why, because I, I agree that there it lacks linearity. It's superficially less rational or less predictable in terms of its behavior. I don't know if you have any thoughts as to like why it is that this is 
it's so difficult for beginners to like let go of it. Uh, I, I mean, well, if, if you if that's where you learn to code, of course, it's going to feel you know familiar. Um, and there's a sense in which it doesn't have a lot of moving pieces, right? Like you run a cell, you run a cell, you run a cell, um, you restart and run all, but it's just, it's there in your browser, it works. Whereas if you want to start like writing code, you know, in modules or whatever, now I need a text editor and now I need to think about which code goes on which file. And now I need to figure out how am I going to run this code for the command line or whatever. So like it goes from basically, you know, Jupyter is doing a lot behind the scenes, but if you're using a notebook, there's basically just one moving piece in some sense, right? And yeah. if you move away from a notebook, there's suddenly a lot of moving pieces. And it's not surprising that that feels like a daunting step. Yeah, I actually had a similar experience leaving academia where all my programming experience was in MATLAB. And MATLAB's kind of the same way where it's all sort of packaged for you in this nice IDE, but like, I didn't even know what an IDE was. I just knew that uh, I type commands here and stuff happens. Uh, so when I finally had to like, get up there in the real world and, and write some applications. Um, yeah, there was, I was kind of frozen. Where do I put my code? How do I even run it? What is a compiler? There's, there's questions like this that you don't necessarily need to answer when you're using a notebook. Exactly. One of the thing, things we like to talk about a little bit is the future of machine learning, where all this stuff is going. And I think you're a particularly interesting person to talk to about this because of your take on, on the software engineering side. Um, one thing, one theme that sort of emerged is, at least as I've talked to a lot of people about this, is some people say that data science gradually is going to move in the direction of software engineering. So essentially, we'll find an integration with software engineering, and you'll have sort of software engineers who have this like data flavor to them. Um, and of course, other people think we're you know we're just going to keep getting more and more specialized. But what, what's your take on that in terms of the the roles and responsibilities of uh, data scientists going forward? So. In 2014, when I left Volumetrics to join Google, that was a big part of my reasoning was the sense that standalone data science was not going to keep being a thing and that people without production code skills were going to get kind of left behind. I, I think the subsequent five years have proved that I was pretty wrong on that count, I think, because it certainly is not what has happened. Um, what you do see happening is that a lot of the data scientists with more software engineering skills are starting to call themselves machine learning engineers. Um, and to the extent that's a trend that kind of continues, and some of them are becoming data engineers, I guess. Um, and to the extent that's a trend that continues, it's possible that what you see is this sort of like hollowing out of what data scientist means. And you do talk to people who, you know, take a data science role or interview for a data science role and find that there's a sense in which it ends up being less than what they expected, right? It's something that you might even have called data analyst five years ago, but you'll get better applicants if you call it data scientist. So the old data bait scientist. and switch. Yep. Yeah, we, we've actually, we've run into that so many times. It's, it, and sometimes you get the opposite rarely where like something will be a data, anal, a data analyst role. And there you kind of get the sense that it's because then you can pay someone as a data analyst rather than paying them a data science salary. There's always an angle. But I think there's, there's also potentially the possibility that people are genuinely confused. I mean, like a lot of companies, especially the ones who are wading into this space for the first time, um, when we have conversations with them at conferences and they're showing up and sort of like, dipping their toes in the water, trying to figure out what it's all about. Um, like the, the number of times I've had conversations where someone goes, you know, we're hiring a bunch of data scientists and I'll, I'll say like, okay, great. Wh like what for? And they'll say, 
We don't know. Um, it's like there, there's a lot of that going on. Uh, I, like, is that something that you see day to day, or do you interact with other companies as well, where where they're sort of trying to figure their uh, their data science effort out? You know, I feel like I, I saw that more a few years ago. At, at least the kind of tech companies that I deal with, uh, or that I interact with, or the people I network at, have it kind of figured out at this point. Uh, which is not to say that you know in places that aren't Seattle and that aren't populated by a bunch of ex-Amazon, ex-Microsoft, ex-Google, ex-Facebook people, that they're still figuring it out. It seems, seems plausible to me. This is definitely uh, more common a few years ago, but every once in a while you spot it and it's it's still happening. Like there's still companies that are catching up like and, and all that stuff. And it makes me think a little bit of the, the trend you're talking about where um, data scientists are transitioning to this machine learning engineer thing. and what you were thinking originally that, oh, maybe the data science job is, is eventually going to become morphed into more of a software engineer side of things. Like maybe it's just a delayed, a delayed effect. Like maybe we just have to wait a few more years before that starts to happen and everyone becomes a machine learning engineer. And so I, I guess what I'd say is I think I was right when I, when I, when I looked and said people who have the data science skills and also the software engineering skills, uh, will be extra valuable going forward. Um, I think I was wrong in the sense that I sort of overestimated how interested the median data scientist would be in pushing themselves in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess there's a sense in which you're, you know, if you have two people who are siloed, you have like one full stack developer and one um, data scientist, now you basically need a software engineer and a data scientist to work together. You also probably need like a project manager or something to allow them to collaborate together sensibly or, or some kind of structure like that. So I guess the the uh, the cost of the org really starts to multiply quickly when you could really integrate that knowledge into the data scientist in the first place and probably get a lot a lot of marginal efficiency squeezed out of them. I think that's true, uh, but if I had to guess, I would guess that it's more driven by the data scientists with those skills are still not really out there yet. Um, and and mm. how to get data scientists to, you know, move in that direction is is I think an interesting problem. And and you know that's what that's why it's one of my things is not so much to make data scientists into software engineers, but more to say software engineers uh, know a lot of things that would be useful to you, and you should uh, learn from them and do these things. And which transition do you think would be easier then to take a software engineer teach them data science skills or vice versa? I would say probably vice versa. It kind of makes sense. I mean, like you're looking at a lot of abstract mathematical concepts and like high dimensional, like a lot of high dimensional calculus and all kinds of complicated stuff. Like it doesn't seem like the sort of thing you could as easily train. Well, so a lot of the software engineering skills I'm talking about are their best practices, right? Um, it, does, it doesn't take, um, you know, you don't have to be a mathematical genius to write a unit test. You don't have to be a mathematical genius to do a code review. You don't have to be a mathematical genius to run pylint against your code, right? So a lot of these things are just adopting best practices that as long as you're an intelligent person, you are able to do. Whereas making the, the leap in the other direction requires, you know, okay, now I need to learn some probability and statistics and, and there's, a, there's a lot going on in that direction. Yeah, you can learn software engineering, almost you can learn it culturally. Like if you're immersed in a group of software engineers, like, and they're using best practices. You frequently can, if you if your starting point is is like is is a good position, 
you can actually learn um, pretty effectively. By osmosis. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say that the best practices part, I think, is pretty easy to learn. I think some of the other parts are not as easy. Things just like water, you know, what does good code look like and what does bad code look like? Um, and, you know, how do I use data structures effectively? Things like that. Th things like that are not as easy to learn. Uh, and I think most data scientists probably could learn them, but it would involve a lot of work that maybe is not that interesting to them. And so I don't expect it to happen the same way. What, uh, what sort of path or resources would you recommend for a data science trying to up their software engineering skills or, or learn best practices? I mean, I like to think that if you read my book, that it will teach you um, not so much about software. I mean, it'll teach you a little bit in, in the sense that I write tests for what I do, and in the sense that I try and write very clean, very well-documented code. Um, but it's not going to teach you anything about how to do code reviews, and it's not going to teach you anything about how do I, you know, set up high test and do this in production and things like that. Um, the the best two ways to improve as a coder are one to get other people to read your code and give you feedback, and two to read other people's code. And and so if you do those things, you'll learn a lot, and you know. Part of the value of code reviews is that people catch mistakes you make, but part of the values of it is that people will look at what you did and say, oh, did you know here's an easier way of doing this? Or you're reviewing someone else's code and you say, oh, wow, that way, but that's a great way to solve that problem. And so you, you learn a lot by having people comment on your code. And you learn a lot by looking at how other people solve problems in different ways than you would have solved them. And so I think those two things uh, are a huge help to you know, improving the way you write code. That's great advice. I, I was just going to say that's exactly how I've learned to code better. Um, having other people's eyes just ripping apart my my mistakes. Yeah. But, it, but it doesn't even have to be mistakes, right? It can be, hey, well, there's nothing wrong with what you did, but did you know that you could have done it much simpler by doing this other way? Yeah, having a good, good engineer um, do like code reviews on your pull requests, like that can get you set on the right path for life. Maybe on that note, that's a good note to end on. Um, thank you so much for your time with this, Joel. Um, can you can you just cite your your because you're very active on Twitter? Do you mind uh, citing your Twitter handle so everybody can follow you if uh, if they're interested? Yeah, so I am uh, at Joel Gruse on Twitter. I'm J O E L G R U S, uh, and I have a blog at joelgruse.com, uh, which is very rarely updated. And uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, I do have my own podcast that I co-host with Andrew Musselman. Yes, called Adver it's called Adversarial Learning, and you can find that at adversariallearning.com. And then, of course, my book is Data Science from Scratch. Uh, look for the fancy new second edition. It's better I, than the first edition. So uh, just a quick question. Um, yeah. Like, who's the target audience for, for the book? Right. So the target audience for the book is basically smart people who know a little bit about coding and a little bit about mathematics and are interested in learning data science. Very cool. Okay, actually, yeah, th thanks for that clarification, Russell. I, I think that'll help people uh, figure out, you know, where do they fit on that. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks again, and we'll we'll cite links to all those uh, all those things, the podcast, the book, and the Twitter handle uh, in the description of the video slash uh, podcast down the road. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.